Have any of you ever seen the movie or heard of the movie Princess Bride? Yes. Uh Uh-huh. Gloria. (laughs) Raise your hand if you've seen it, if you know about it. The Princess Bride. So it came out in the late 80s, I think 1987, and it was not in in our wheelhouse as a family because our kids were kind of young then, and uh, and so, uh, but then as they became teenagers, so in the late 90s and in the early 2000s, as they were all teenagers and going to various churches, and and guess what? They were showing it at youth groups, The Princess Bride. So I did become familiar with it, and it's a cute movie. It is a lot of fun to watch. But there's a part in the middle of that movie that grabbed my attention then, and it grabbed my attention as we're getting ready to study this study that we're going to have this morning. If you recall, there's this uh, three characters, and one is uh, Inigo Montoya, and he's this famous swordsman. You killed my father, that guy. And then there's uh, this little tiny bald man who's very annoying and thinks he's smarter than everybody. And I don't know his name, but he always says this one word. Remember the word? Yes, with a lisp. Inconceivable, right? And then there was Andre the Giant. So the three of them were standing there, and they're looking down this bottomless cliff, and there's the sea down below, and the dread pirate Roberts is trying to come and get them. And anyway, they cut the rope, and he didn't fall. He didn't go. He didn't die. And the little man goes, that's inconceivable. And Montoya, the swordsman, looks at him. He says, you use that word a lot. I don't think that word means what you think it means. And I say that to say this, because we're going to study right now the church. And we're going to study the mystery of the church. And that's a word that we use all the time, church, going to church. Hey, how was church today? Whew, wish I could make it to church, but uh, football game's on. Uh, Wait, we don't say that, do we? No. Um, Wow, I was going to go to church, but I partied a little too hard last night. We never say that either. No, but we use that word church all the time. And I think we don't understand what it really means quite often. Or we might act altogether differently if we really understood what that word means. So that's what we're going to study today. You know, pastor taught through the book of Acts, and then he did this series on stewardship, and and, and all of these things that we're studying uh, are all connected. And going through the book of Acts, it just opened up and revealed many things about the church that, uh, you know, it's some of those things we're doing and some we go, wow, let's, let's work on weaving that into the body here, you know. And so we, we're growing as a church all the time. Um, so this is uh, never an irrelevant subject. What is the church? What does it mean to me? How am I related to that? What does it mean in my everyday life? And how does it mean I should live? To begin, we're going to start with Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. So turn there in your Bibles, Ephesians 3, 1 to 12. We're going to read through here these passages, and we're going to talk a little bit about it. And this is our intro, and then we're going to go to John chapter 14, verses 1 through 20, 
for the meat of what we have to say. You ready? Everybody have an outline, by the way? Everybody? Who does not have an outline? Raise your hand. We're all good? Okay. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, pause. Pause. In fact, if your Bible may have a line there. It may show a line like, oh, there is a pause. Let's look at that. Paul says, for this reason. What? Wait, what reason? Oh, well, we're going to have to look up. Verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone in him. The whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles... Oh, hold on. Then Paul goes into a parenthetical statement, verses 2 through 13, because he picks up that thought again for this reason in verse 14. Do you see that? Verse 14... Oh, yeah, and for this reason, I kneel before the Father, and he goes through one of Paul's prayers that are so famous in the Scripture. Let's look at that parenthetical statement. Let's look at what Paul is saying. Surely, you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That's the word stewardship, by the way. pastor preached a uh, a multiple sermons on that concept of stewardship, the administration of God's grace. This was a stewardship, this was the job that was given to Paul. That is the mystery that was made known to me, Paul, by by what? Revelation. As I have already written briefly, in reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into what? The mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets, This mystery is is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power, although I am less than the least of all of the Lord's people. This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. And to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent, God's intent, was that now, through the what? Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. According to his eternal purpose, that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. The church, the mystery of the church, was made known to Paul by revelation. That's your first line to fill in. Made known to Paul by revelation. 
2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 4, we won't turn there, but you can read it later. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, Paul kind of describes what that means. And the, uh, the time period when that revelation, this particular revelation was given to Paul about the mystery of the church. And this is the mystery, Gentiles and Jews to be united in one body. Gentiles and Jews to be united in one body. This is God's delightful and mysterious surprise. This is his delightful and mysterious surprise that he has kept hidden until just the right moment. Now, write down this verse because I don't think I have it in the notes, but 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. As you're turning there, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Let's just break that down a little bit, what we just talked about. This idea of the church and the mystery of the church was hidden to the Old Testament prophets. They spoke about it, but they didn't understand it. There were prophecies about it, but they didn't understand it. It was also hidden to the angelic host, this mystery. Uh, if you're in First Peter, let's look at it real quick. Verse 10, chapter 1. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, you the church, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. The, the, the ancient, the old apostles and prophets of, of the Old Testament were like, what's happening? When is it happening? It's going to be marvelous, but what is it and when? And they, they were studying and trying to figure that out. It was also revealed to them, verse 12, that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then what is that last line? Even angels long to look into these things. Even angels long to look into these things. You know, can, can you imagine from, from the very beginning in the garden when that fateful decision was made by Adam and Eve to disobey God and to take the fruit? Oh. Wait, we're going to be like God. We're going to understand good from evil. Has God really said? And they took the fruit and they ate the fruit. And the moment that happened, sin entered into the world. Death entered into the world. Death passed upon all men. Adam opened the door for sin and death and corruption to flood the entire world the entire cosmos, and, and sin was woven into the DNA of every human being that would be born from the seed of Adam to, to the end of time, till, till there were no longer children to be born of Adam, of his seed. And as the angelic host watched, 
how are you going to fix this, Lord? How are you going to rescue those who are made in your image, your children? They're broken. They're corrupted. They're dead. They're separated from you. There is no life in them. How are you going to fix it? And they could read the prophecies. They could see the prophets. They even delivered some of the prophecies themselves. And yet they didn't understand it. How is this going to happen? The idea of what was to come was a mystery to all of them. And it was such a great and glorious and fantastically unimaginable mystery that God himself, we're just going to leave it until the moment that it's time to reveal it, until the moment that it's time to unpackage this beautiful present that I have that's going to rescue all of mankind, that's going to be the answer to the sin that has destroyed my children. The mystery that was hidden from ages past and is now revealed. Now, that mystery is what? The church. The mystery is the church. It's Jews and Gentiles together, the body of Christ. It's Christ in us. That's the mystery that they couldn't understand, but that's the mystery that's coming. John chapter 14 now. We're going to start reading with verse 1. I'm going to read all the way through verse 20. Then we're going to go back and we're going to break it down a little bit. You ready? Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so... Would I have told you I'm going there to prepare a place for you? But if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going? Hold on, Thomas. Thomas said to him, time out, Lord. No, he didn't say that. Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, you all know this verse, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Well, it's Philip's time to interrupt. I wonder if they drew straws. Lord, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father's in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it's the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father's in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. 
and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it, if you love me. And guess what? We shouldn't put a big, giant break between ask me anything in my name, and I will do it, and if you love me. They go together. If we don't love him, if we're not keeping his commands, he won't even hear us. Psalm 66, 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. But if we are loving him and obeying his commands, ask anything in my name and I will do it. Verse 15. If you love me, it says keep my commands. But I have to say this. That word keep, that verb is in the future indicative. It should be translated, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And future indicative again, I will ask the Father. And future indicative, he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. This is all something that's coming. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will, I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. And on that day, on that day, what day? Well, we'll talk about it in a minute. You will realize that I am in my Father, and you are, you are in me, and I am in you. Let's break this down a little bit. At the beginning of this passage, well, let's put it into context, shall we? Do you know what moment this is in history where Jesus is speaking? Chapters 13 through 17, Jesus is having his last supper with his disciples. So this is the last night that he has with them after three years of walking together, of suffering together, of ministering together, this is their last night together before he's arrested and taken to trial and crucified on the cross. So it's a very intimate and poignant time, and they don't know it yet, but Jesus does. So that's what's going on. In chapter 14, we see Jesus starting out with some, what we might call, Trinitarian type of statements. Um, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. These are statements that are Trinitarian nature. Jesus is making him, calling himself and identifying himself as equal with God. So let's just lay that out right now. In fact, the book of John, the gospel of John, is the gospel that focuses on this, that Jesus is God. It describes him as God. Luke, Jesus is man. Mark, Jesus is a servant. Matthew, Jesus is the king. John, Jesus is deity. So Jesus has made some Trinitarian statements as he goes through this passage. But he says this one line, and this is the line that we're going to camp on. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. That's in verses 10 and 11. I am in the Father, 
and the Father is in me. Now, a few weeks ago, we did a study on the Trinity on Wednesday nights, and as we were going through this passage, that line, I am in the Father and the Father in me, is in me, at first I'm like, well, that's a Trinitarian statement also. That's, he's talking about he and the Father are one, and, and then as I read on, I'm like, wait, wait, wait a minute, I've got to rethink this. Now, let's just define the Trinity while we're here, shall we? What does the word Trinity mean? The Trinity is how many gods? One God and three persons. One God, three persons. We have notes, we have books, there's all kinds of things written. There's a lot of verses to go to that will describe this. If we look at Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, we won't turn there, but if you look at that, it is the Trinity on display. The Trinity on display. It is the baptism of Jesus. And so we see the Son being baptized by John. As he's coming up out of the water, we see the Holy Spirit, it says, descends on him like a dove. And then the voice of the Father from heaven says, Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. So we see Jesus the Son. We see the Holy Spirit. We see the Father all functioning. And as we search through scriptures and as we as we study the scripture, we, we, know, we notice several things. One, we notice that Jesus is indeed God Almighty. All the attributes of God belong to him. It says, uh, the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwells in Jesus. He is God. He is immutable. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He is everywhere present. He is sovereign. He is the creator. He is the life giver. He is all of these things. He is the eternal God. And we see the Holy Spirit also called God throughout Scripture. So we have, we have, but we also have many Scriptures say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And we have multiple Scriptures that describe God as one essence. So I'm just going to give you a quick definition of the Trinity. One God, three persons. Jesus is all God. The Father is all God. The Spirit is all God. But Jesus is not the Father. The Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not Jesus. Jesus is not the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father, and vice versa. You get me? It's like a triangle. Father is not Jesus. Jesus is not... But all of them are all God. One God, three persons. That's all we can say about it right now. It's all we have time for. But now we're going to talk about the nature of Jesus himself and the humanity of Jesus. John 1, verse 1, says this. Remember it? In the beginning was the Word. And it says, and you can turn there, John. John 1, 1 and John 1, 14 are the verses we're going to look at. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God. And then there's this parenthetical statement about the word. And then in verse 14, it picks up that same thought and it says, and the word became 
flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So it's talking about Jesus, right? Because it says he became flesh. And it says about Jesus that he was with God and was God. And when it says he was with God, it means literally face to face. That was the relationship that the word had with God the Father, a face-to-face intimate relationship with God and yet is God and became flesh. So that's one of the things that we can say about Jesus, is God and yet he became flesh. Now, turn over to Philippians chapter 2, and it defines it even a little uh, more closely. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Philippians 2, 6 through 8, who, who is it talking about? It says who. You've got to look at the verse up above. Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. So what can we say about Jesus in that passage? Again, it says, he is God. But then it says, He made himself nothing, or he made himself of no reputation. The word literally is he emptied himself. So what we see happening as we back check with other scriptures, which we will do, is that Jesus, while walking here on earth, set aside some of the prerogatives of deity, and we'll explore that in a minute. Set aside some of the prerogatives of deity. He became a man... Hold on, though. He never set aside his deity. He was always all God, all the time. From the womb to the resurrection, he was always all God. But as a man, as a man, there were certain prerogatives of deity that he set aside, and that's a mystery. And he became a man, and he humbled himself, and he became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Now, what does that mean? Definition-wise, this is what we can say about Jesus. He has two natures. One nature is God. The other nature is man. But these two natures are in one person, and that's Jesus. Mystery. But that's what the Bible is showing us. Now, in John 14.10, so we want to turn back there, John 14.10 When he says, I'm going to go up one. No, 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 sorry. My glasses are fogging up. Verse 10, don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father's in me? So when he says that, then he gives us an idea of what he's talking about. Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority. 
Jesus is talking about how he's functioning relationally to the Father while walking on earth. I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. The words that I'm speaking, I'm not speaking of my own authority. I'm speaking under the authority of the Father. Now, why does Jesus start to frame the discussion with the disciples in this way? In verses 15 and on, we can see why. Jesus is setting the stage for them to understand something. While I'm on earth, this is how I function. As you've seen me these last three years, everything that I've done is under the authority of the Father, according to the will of the Father, under the direction of the Father. This is how I have functioned. The Father in me and I in Him means I am subject to the Father. Everything that I do, every word that comes out of my mouth is from the Father and of the Father and through the Father and by the power of the Father and the strength of the Father. How do I know that? John 4.34 The Samaritan woman, remember? He's at the well. He meets her. She gets saved. She goes and evangelizes the whole village. And the disciples, in the meantime, had gone to get some food. And when they come back, the woman's not there. But there's Jesus sitting by the well, and they're like, okay, you want a, you want a double or a single? You, got, you want pickles or no pickles? You know, what do you want? And they're bringing him food, and he's not hungry. <sighs> they're urging him, eat, Rabbi. He said, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. His disciples said to each other, well, so who brought him food? Somebody else? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That's what sustained him, was doing the will of the Father. Turn over to chapter 5, the next page over. Jesus has healed a man on the Sabbath at the pool of Bethsaida, now he's catching grief, verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father's always at work, at his work, to this very day, and I too am working for this reason. Okay, now, now you've had it, Jesus, because now you've called God your father and made yourself equal to him, and so now we really got to kill you. Um. So they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to to God. So Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. Did you catch that? As I'm walking on this earth, I do nothing by myself. Everything I do, do is under the authority of and through the strength of and according to the will of the Father. I do nothing by myself. He can do only what he sees the Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. In Luke chapter 2, verse 49, we have the account of Jesus when he was 12 years old and his family had come from Nazareth. They traveled down to 
Jerusalem for the feast, and uh, they were there for a while, and then the whole clan was traveling back up to Nazareth, Nazareth, and they've been going along for, you know, three days, and they haven't seen Jesus. He's 12 years old. He's, you know, bar mitzvahed. He's a man, and they got a lot of little ones that they've got to, you know, they're mind, mindful of, and so they haven't really paid attention, but three days out, they're like, so, wait, has anybody seen Jesus, right? And they can't find him. So Mary and Joseph scurry back to Jerusalem, and they make their way to the temple, and there they find him sitting surrounded by the greatest teachers of the law that, that Israel can produce because that's the center of learning right there. There he is in the midst, and, and they're doing a dialogue and a give and take, and the teachers of the law are like, oh, is this guy? He know what? And Mary and Joseph, like Jesus, what's up? And he says, "Don't you know I need to be about my father's business? This is what I'm here for. I'm doing the work of my father. Even at the age of twelve, he was functioning in that way." Hebrews ten two ten through eighteen. Hebrews 3, 2, Hebrews 4, 15, Hebrews 5, 1 through 10. All those verses talk about this very thing, but I want to just turn to one of them, Hebrews chapter 5, and we'll read that. And I'm going to just read verses 7 through 10. Later, when you go home, you can read these other verses, and, and it'll help you understand what we're talking about. But Hebrews... Chapter 5, verses 7 through 10. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his, because of why? Because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience. He learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made complete, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, going back now to John chapter 14, when Jesus said, I am in the Father and the Father is in me, and then he went right to the, I only speak under his authority, he was saying, this is how I function on earth, as I've said. And now he's going to move into and guess what? This is how you're going to need to function. And you can't do it now, but you will be given the power to do it at the right time. So verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because, because I live, you will also live. And on that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. I am in you, and you are in me. Speaking of two things now, we're speaking of the indwelling Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit. 
the second and third persons of the Trinity. Jesus is saying, I will be in you, and the Holy Spirit will be in you. There's several verses. There's many multiple verses that talk about Jesus being in us. Um, John 17, 26. You can read that later. Romans 8, 9 through 10. But I want to turn just here real quick to Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. I'm going to read it for you. Colossians 1, 27. Starting with verse 24, 24 to 27. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, Paul says, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is what? The church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery, here we go again, that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. What is the mystery? The mystery of the church is this mystery. It's defined this way. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery of the church is the mystery of the indwelling Christ within us. Displaying the glory of God. The indwelling Christ. Now the indwelling spirit. He promised it. He says, I will ask the Father. He will give you another advocate. It's coming. It's going to happen. There will be a moment in time where this happens. In John chapter 7, he stands at, uh, during the great feast. In John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39, and he shouts out, On the last and greatest day of that festival, he stood and he shouted out, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant, what? The Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus has not yet been glorified. So the Holy Spirit, who is to come. Now, of course, Acts chapter 1. Jesus says it again. Acts chapter 1. This thing that he promised, this thing that he prophesied about, he says in verse 4, this is just prior to his ascension. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Don't leave Jerusalem. Wait for the gift my father promised, the Holy Spirit, the advocate, John 14. Wait for the gift which you heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Turn over one page, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. A few days later, now it's the day of Pentecost. It had come. They were all together, hundred, how many? 120 of them in an upper room, probably the same room where they had the Last Supper. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were eating, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled him, and nothing was ever the same again. The church was born. The mystery was revealed. The Spirit in us, Christ indwelling within us. What happens when that happens? Last week, you guys are in the second service, so you didn't get to get see what happened in the first service. There was a whole, almost an entire row, 
in the back. And, uh, and Al, who was the leader of that clan, stood up, and he brought a 10-year-old boy down front. And then his mom came falling right behind, and then his sister came right behind, and then four young girls came right behind, all teenage girls, and they all came up here, and they got saved last week. And they were here in the first service again, and he brought two more to get saved, and they got saved today. Al the Evangelist, pray for Al. Pray for that family. But what transpired here when they surrendered themselves to Christ? What transpired? What happened? 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is the nut of it, what happened. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, just as a body, now remember in some of those verses we read, it was talking about the church as the body. Just as the body, though one has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit to form one body, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink, even so the body is not made up of one part, but many. The body is the body of Christ. We were all baptized into Christ and into his body, and that is the church. We are the body of Christ, indwelt, sealed, and baptized by the Holy Spirit into this body, And we are in Christ now, and Christ is in us. That's the mystery of the church. How does this work? We have Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in, in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. Romans 6, 1 through 6, talks about Laying aside sin, sin no longer has dominion over us. We can choose to sin, but sin no longer has power over us unless we give sin power. Do you know that? He's rendered sin powerless. Now it's our choice, thankfully, because we do choose to sin. Thankfully, we have an advocate. Thankfully, we can confess to the Father. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But I do want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 20 to 24 because this is how this works. Ephesians 4, verses 20 to 24. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to do what? To put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness, and this is how we should live." And write this verse down, Romans 13, verses 12 through 14. Verse 14 says this. Romans 12, 14 says, Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh 
to fulfill its lusts. What we just read in Ephesians 4 helps us understand Romans 12, 14. Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Ephesians 4, there's this old man. It says, you put him off. You put that old man off, and now you have the new man, the, the, the new person that you are. This is your identity. You are a new person in Christ. Sometimes, though, because it says to those who are already in Christ, don't put that old man back on. And sometimes we do. We're like, I miss you. I know you're dead and stinky and filthy and ugly and corrupt, but I miss you. I miss those old days. I mean, we do that sometimes. Come on. Just just go with me for a little while. Let me get you up on here. Okay. Whoo, you're stinky. But I kind of miss you. No, no, no. Throw him off. Throw that old man off. Uh, Don't even grab him by the foot and drag him along. Keep him over there. You do not have to put the old man back on, but we choose to. Don't. Don't. Keep that stinky old man where he belongs in the grave. That corruption in the grave. When we come to Christ, we are made a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. We have the indwelling Christ in us. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit in us. And something that happens, and that's also in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when he baptizes us into the body of Christ, he gives us gifts. Did you know that? 1 Corinthians 12 has a whole list of gifts. Romans 12 has a whole list of gifts. Of gifts. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 has a list of four. And 1 Peter chapter 4 has a list, a short list of gifts. If you have asked Jesus into your heart and surrendered your life to him, you've been baptized into the church, into the body of Christ, by the Holy Spirit, and you have been given gifts. Why? Should it be all cool? No. Because we're a body, and we all have to function as the body. Some are hands, some are fingers, some are toes, some are feet, some are legs, some are arms, some are mouths, some are eyes, there's a nose. I don't know. We're all in this body, and he's gifted us so that we can function in a healthy and vibrant and vigorous way as the body of Christ. How do we do it? John 15, 1 through 5 talks about you are, you're the branches, I'm the, uh, I'm the vine, abide in me and I will abide in you. Jesus gave us the template for how to live. He said, the Father's in me and I am in, I am in him. We are in Christ and he is in us. The branches in the vine, we draw our nourishment from Christ. We draw our strength from Christ. We draw our life from Christ. And when we're doing that, we're bearing fruit. We're using the gifts that he's given us. How do we do that? How do we do that? Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present 
your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And don't be conformed to this world. Stop picking up that old man and dragging him along. Let go. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, the word, so that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Colossians 3.16. Saturate yourselves with the word of God. Let the word of Christ dwell within you richly. Be saturated with the word of God. I thank the Lord that my dad made me memorize hundreds of verses. I thank him because I could never do it now. But as a five-year-old and a six-year-old, I couldn't. He wasn't even going to give me a Bible until I could say a couple chapters of something. Then I got a Bible. And then I wanted a bicycle. Okay, let's see. Memorize Romans 12 and Ephesians 1. And then you might get a bicycle. You know, thank the Lord that he did that. Saturate yourselves with the word of God. Pour it out on your children. Saturate them with the word of God. And in doing that, you will speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You're going to sing and make melody in your hearts to the Lord. And then and in a, a, a parallel verse of that is Ephesians 5.18. Don't be drunk with wine. Don't be controlled by wine, but be controlled by the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit, and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Galatians 5.16. Walk in the Spirit, and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And you'll bear the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of the flesh. Okay. This is the deal. If you have surrendered to Christ, if you have given your life to Christ, you know, this is what we say all the time. Hey, I'm going to church. Church is over there. What church are you going to? Oh, my church is over there. Uh, I'm not going to be able to go today because, you know, I stayed up too late last night. Or, no, we're never going to think that way if we understand this truth and we live according to this truth and we walk according to this truth. We'll be like, I am the church. You are the church. The church is gathering, the Lord is working. And we're being, we're being uh, built up in the faith. And we're being invigorated in the faith. And the Lord is working here in a way that he doesn't work anywhere else, in a powerful way. And the gifts are being utilized. And then we go out and we do the work. But the church is us, the body of Christ. You feel me? You understand what I'm saying? We are not, oh yeah, yeah, I might make it to church. No, no, no. You are the church. Act like it. Be like it. Do it. Be the church. Christ in you and you in him. Let's stand.